Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Chalk up another win for National Nurses United. A not-so-happy New Year coming for Pizza Hut delivery drivers in Southern California. And today on the show, the Government Affairs Director of the AFL-CIO and the President of the North American Building Trades. Welcome to the Thursday, December 28th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with Bill Samuel, longtime supporter of America's Workforce, and he serves as the Government Affairs Director of the AFL-CIO. For complete updates, go to aflcio.org, and we'll wrap up the year in labor and in politics. And uh, this is not surprising. We have the least productive Congress in about a half century. Yeah, about 50 years. So what can we expect in the new Congress and the new Speaker? Well, we may see another government shutdown. The uh, continuing resolution, there's actually uh, two dates. And the first one is January 19th. The second one is in February. But that's how they left the last Congress. So we'll take a look at what may or may not happen in 2024, which will be a very politically charged year, as you well know. Later in the show, we're going to uh, replay a segment that I did with Sean McGarvey, Sean, president of the North American Building Trades Unions, better known as NABTU. And this is a segment that uh, was aired back in July, where Sean discussed NABTU's current multi-city highlight tour, which was all about raising awareness on the efforts by local building trades unions who are making a major effort to create a pipeline to the trades for members in the underserved and high-risk communities. This has been going on for quite some time. One of the cities was Central Ohio, Columbus area, which is booming right now, as you've been listening to uh, the reports from Dorsey Hager, who handles the uh, Columbus Central Ohio building trades. Sean stressed the need to get more people involved in the trades as unions keep individuals in the middle class, pathway to the middle class. We say that on the show many, many times. And he specifically noted the effort to recruit members of the underserved and high-risk communities. And there's a lot that can be done there. Sean also talked about the rebuilding of I-95 in Philadelphia after a tanker truck caught fire and actually incinerated part of the bridge. The video on that was was amazing. And in record time, thanks to a number of unions, they got it all fixed. It was amazing. Just amazing to see what workers, especially skilled union workers, did in a short amount of time. So uh, Sean McGarvey will be buttoning up. Well, actually, uh, this is the second last show here on America's workforce. And uh, there's some good news, too. I mentioned this on the show yesterday. The Biden administration unveiled a new rule requiring companies working on large infrastructure projects, like the one on I-95, to reach project labor agreements. And that 
that could protect about 200,000 workers. Good stuff there. Good stuff there. Now, a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. Registered nurses at University Medical Center, UMC, this is in New Orleans, have voted to join National Nurses Organizing Committee, which is part of National Nurses United, the largest union of registered nurses in the country. The vote went on for three days, December 7th, 8th, and 9th. The nurses voted overwhelmingly in favor of joining the union. This despite a disgusting union-busting effort from management. And the vote was 82% yes. 90% turnout altogether. This is a historic day for UMC, for New Orleans, and for the surrounding area, and for all of Louisiana and the South. That comment from Dion Jones, who's a registered nurse there. Nurses at our hospital wanted a voice so we can speak up for our patients and ourselves, and we wanted a seat at the table to be involved in shaping the future of our hospital. Now that we won our union, well, we have both. Nurses in units across the hospital supported this union because of the difficult working conditions at the facility, said uh, Christine Faulkner, who's another RN. As members of National Nurses United, the nurses are joining a nationwide movement of nurses committed to fighting for our patients, our communities, and our fellow health care workers, according to Kathy Kennedy, who's the president of the California Nurses Association. UMC is now the first private sector hospital to be unionized in the state of Louisiana. And, and, this was the largest National Labor Relations Board election in that state in nearly 30 years, making UMC nurses vote to join National Nurses United, a watershed victory for labor organizing in the South. I've been mentioning this on the show. We're seeing a lot of activity in those right-to-work states. And it's happening. It's happening. So I congratulate the vigilance and passion of National Nurses United. They represent right now hundreds of thousands of nurses, including members in facilities in southern states, Texas, Alabama, Florida, North Carolina, and now in Louisiana. Let's go to uh, Southern California right now. Pizza Hut is set to lay off more than 1,200 delivery drivers in Los Angeles, Orange, and Riverside counties in the new year. This is, well, according to some, because of a new state law that boosts the fast food minimum wage by $4 an hour to 20 bucks an hour. The law is known as Assembly Bill 1228. It was signed into law in the fall by Governor Gavin Newsom. A second Pizza Hut franchise, Southern California Pizza, is also planning to lay off about 841 drivers. And those layoffs will impact drivers in Pizza Hut locations in Sacramento, Palm Springs, Los Angeles, Central California, Southern Oregon, and the Reno Tahoe area in Nevada. Yum Brands, which owns Pizza Hut and other fast food companies such as Taco Bell and KFC, did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Now, they previously told 
several publications that its franchises independently own and operate their restaurants in accordance with local market dynamics and comply with all federal, state, and local regulations while continuing to provide quality service and food. It was previously reported that other food chains like Chipotle and McDonald's said they plan to raise menu prices because of the wages. Now, following the law's passing, the sponsor said the pay increase will help workers feed their children, keep gasoline in their vehicles, and improve the quality of life. In addition to raising the minimum wage for fast food workers to 20 bucks an hour, it will also establish a fast food council representing a path forward to resolve employer community concerns while preserving fast food workers by securing a seat at the table to raise standards. The council will consist of nine voting members, consisting of representatives of the fast food industry, franchisees, employees, advocates, one unaffiliated member of the public, and two non-voting members who will provide direction and coordinate with state powers to ensure the healthy, safety, and employment of fast food workers. Responsibilities of the council will also include development of fast food worker standards covering wages, working conditions, and training. It's uh, estimated that this legislation, AB 1228, will impact more than 550,000 fast food workers and about 30,000 restaurants in the state. Now, mind you, Pizza Hut franchises are preparing to pivot toward third-party apps like DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber Eats. For pizza and food deliveries because they say they can't afford to pay the drivers the $20 an hour. We'll see what happens here. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to link up with Bill Samuel, Government Affairs Director of the AFL-CIO. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The, the United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the US, US, Canada, and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are Steelworkers. Standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylines and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, 
The Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great iron worker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at Lyuna.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be a WF Union podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency. You can find more at ulagency.org. In fact, we have Dave Meganhart, the executive director, slated for uh, next Wednesday here on America's Workforce. First new Wednesday in 2024. My God, did this year fly by. Let's go to uh, line number one. Welcome, a dear friend, longtime contributor to America's Workforce. That would be Bill Samuel, who serves for many years now the Government Affairs Director of the AFL-CIO. And before we talk here, you know who we're going to feature on the show, Mr. Samuel, is somebody that you know very, very well. His name is Cecil Roberts. Oh, my gosh, yeah. He's <laughs> a long time. Oh, That's my great. God, yeah. Your, your name came up in the conversation. That show is going to air right on New Year's Day. And I've been, chase, oh. I've been chasing that guy for a while he is he is something else he really he is. is he was just reelected to another four-year term yeah i don't i don't even know what number it is but he's been president since he took over for uh rich trumka in i want to say 95 yeah yeah you're right Does that sound right yeah, yeah you're right absolutely right he um he became i guess secretary treasurer in the 80s i mean here's a guy that served in vietnam right he comes home i mean a tumultuous time in our yeah. history gets uh, gets employed in the coal mines and works his way up the ranks and uh, is president since 1995 he has not lost a beat he has not lost a oh, beat oh that's right and yeah. he's you know he's a fabulous speaker um, always ignites the crowd and uh, yeah he's led the union as you said for 30 some years and he's from a small town in West Virginia called Cabin Creek. I'm sure he'll talk about it. Oh, it's great stuff, great stuff. Yeah. Well, we, we zeroed in on the Warrior-Met situation, which was really ugly. Right. That uh, that went on for almost two years. But the big uh, the big issue is the silica dust. I learned a lot about silica dust. So uh, mm -hmm. it's going to be uh, aired on, uh, that's a good way to start off uh, 2024. That'll be on, on Monday's show. But right now... Let's talk about what's not happening, and that that would be our Congress. The what is it? The least productive Congress in what, like a half a century or something in like that? Fifty years. So with just thirty-one pieces of legislation becoming law in twenty twenty-three, you were about to end. It's the lowest number of uh, bills passed and acted signed by the president in the modern era, going back fifty years. Now, of course, they didn't have a speaker for. What three weeks? <laughs> there was, well, they went from Kevin McCarthy to uh, uh, to, to Mike Johnson um, without you know. So they had a big period. They had a long period without any speaker. But even when Kevin McCarthy was there, and now that Mike Johnson's there, they've just been unable to function uh, as a governing majority. You know, they've got a slim majority, but they can't hold their themselves together. Nancy Pelosi had a very slim majority. Uh, back in, I guess it was 2007, I think. And she she managed to pass a lot of very important pieces of legislation. Uh, the Republicans don't seem to be able to get their act together. 
And sadly, it's just a few people that are holding everything up here. And and why is that? I, I don't understand that part. Well, Bill. it doesn't take, you know, I mean, as I said, the slim majority, I think right now they've got a majority of three, meaning if they lose three Republicans on any given vote and Democrats stay together, which they've been doing, uh, then they lose their majority. You need 218 votes in the House. There's 435 members when everybody's there present and voting. Republicans have, I think, 221. Uh, and if they lose three, uh, or more than three, I should say, then they're under 218 if, if Democrats hang together. Um, and that happens, it's happened over and over again. And again, when Nancy Pelosi was Speaker, uh, that never happened. I think in, in her, you know, eight years as Speaker, I can't remember how many years it was, she may have lost one vote or two. And the reason she, that, it's not that she was able to pass everything she wanted, but she knew going in when she had a majority, so she didn't have one. She worked on it, she worked on it, she worked on it, until she got one. And then she brought it to the floor and it passed. It might pass narrowly, but it always passed. Republicans, it's like they're in the dark. They just put these bills up on the floor. They don't know if they have the votes. Half the time they don't. And then people, and then they get angry at each other. And then they, you know, go home for, they go home early. You know, sometimes Wednesday night, uh, there's a con, you know, there's a big uh, collision on the floor. They go home for, because they got to calm down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's really been something to watch. I've never seen anything like this. And uh, it's, I don't think it's going to get any better. It's probably going to get worse next year uh, because tempers really frayed toward the end there when they went home for Christmas with the new speaker. Uh, his lease is very short, this fellow Mike Johnson from Louisiana, very short. Uh, they've, they've lost five appropriation bills. You know, this is the, the, the basic sort of function of government, fund the government, fund the agencies and the programs Americans count on. They haven't been able to do that. There's 12, bills all, 12 appropriation bills altogether. They've, they've lost five of them. That's why they're running on these continuing resolutions. And they and the first one expires uh, January 19th, meaning they've got 10 days when they come back to try to pass this thing. And I don't see how they can do it right now. So there's actually two parts to this. There, there's That's a right. proposed shutdown on the 19th, and then there's one in February. Is that right? February 2nd. What, what he did, and I'm not sure the thinking behind this, I, I can't get inside his head, but they normally the continuing resolution This is, funds the government, the entire government, for some period of time, 30 days, 60 days, while they negotiate the 12 component parts, you know, the, the 12 bills that make up the government. For some reason, he split it in two, so four of them, uh, expire January 19th, and the rest, the other eight, expire February 2nd. So he's got two bites of the apple, uh, and right now uh, there's no agreement on any top-line spending, so that you can't break it out, you know, break it out into the four bills or the eight bills to figure out how much goes to labor, how much goes to defense, how much goes to the VA, et cetera. There's no top-line number that they, that they within their own caucus. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying they can't agree with Democrats. They can't agree among themselves. Right. So it's really a mess, and uh, so we just have to get through it till the next election. So right now, I mean, we could see a shutdown on January 19th, and then a full shutdown by February 2nd, if that we if, could, right? We could, yeah. Uh, the, the, the agencies that could shut down on the 19th would be agriculture, energy, uh, and the VA, as I said, uh, and some programs that are funded within those categories. Uh, and then the second one would be 
uh, February 2nd, that's labor, health and human services, education, commerce, justice, homeland security, etc. So that's the big one. Uh, they've given themselves a little more time. Um, but again, until they agree on a top line number, uh, and right now they're still struggling with that, and we're, we're talking tens of billions of dollars apart. Uh, the, and, and the interesting thing here is that the Republicans in the Senate aren't, aren't with them. Mm-hmm. Republicans in the Senate have worked with their Democratic colleagues. And, the, and by the way, there's a one, you know, seat majority in the Senate for Democrats. It's just as tight. But they've managed to get their work done. And they've passed a bunch of their appropriation bills. And they're just waiting for the House to act. And we'll see if they can do it in the week, in the week they get back. I, maybe they're going to come back and they've reached some, you know, uh, magic accommodation over the holiday. Uh, and, and they'll start governing again. But I don't see it right now. So they don't come back next week, not till the week after then? They come back on the 9th. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's their first day back in session. Uh, and that's, as I said, 10 days from the 19th when the current continuing appropriation resolution expires. And, you know, when the day they get back, agencies have to start planning for the shutdown. Right. Uh, they've got to start, right, winding down. Um, so this is, you know, again, it's the basic functioning of government to pay the bills, pay them, pay federal employees. There are about 2 million of them. Uh, and they will either go without a paycheck um, well, they will all go without a paycheck when the government shuts down. Some will have to work and not get paid. Right. They're considered, you know, essential air traffic controllers, uh, various law enforcement um, functions. They continue to go to work without getting paid. You can imagine what that does for morale. Oh, yeah. And the last time this happened, the last serious shutdown, Trump was president, 30, lasted 35 days. And air traffic controllers who were told to work and not get paid started calling in sick. And as soon as the air traffic system ground to a halt, the shutdown ended. Republicans yeah. essentially gave in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a breaking point. Now, right. let, let's. You, you mentioned the VA. That would be the first one affected. Yeah. Now, yeah. what will happen there? I mean, we've the VA takes care of our veterans. Well, here. I know. You know, I think they're probably certainly doctors and nurses are. I'm. I would assume are considered essential. You don't leave patients you know, alone um, to fend for themselves. Uh, VA checks will continue to be mailed, um, as will Social Security and Medicare, but you, there'll be no one there to answer the phone to apply for a new benefit, to, to, to get questions answered if checks don't arrive on time. <clears throat> so there's, there's a lot of uh, instability, even when these, some of these automatic programs continue, as I said, Social Security and Medicare. Try going to a Social Security office, though, when the government shuts down, they, you know there probably won't be anybody there, and if there's a skeleton crew, you're gonna you're not gonna be able to see anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, checks will be mailed because they, they're computerized now, and they continue to go even without uh, people uh, manning the um, uh, the agency. But uh, it, you know, parks close. You know, all the obvious things: uh, national parks, museums, you know, anything federal uh, uh, supported by the federal government shuts down essentially. Bill, there's one more question here before we break here. Say we get past all of this with these shutdowns. Next year is election year. Will anything get done because of that being the case? I don't think so. I think with my betting, my guess, there may be a short shutdown, maybe not. They will basically limp through the next uh, 11 months. You know, election day is next November. Uh, they will probably keep the government functioning at some very minimal level. There'll be no new programs 
Some will have to tighten their belt because they're not going to increase funding to account for inflation, pay raises, construction costs, all that. Um, so there'll be some cutbacks people will probably notice. Um, that's if they stay open. That's the best possible you know, uh, outcome, I think. Uh, and then hopefully by November there's an election. Now, can I just say one thing? Sure. This, this government that is, this Congress that is not functioning in a way is probably a blessing because if they were functioning, they'd be rolling back all kinds of protections uh, and, and, uh, and laws that the Democrats managed to pass some on a bipartisan basis in previous Congresses. You know, they try, they're trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. So again, if they were functioning, they'd probably be doing pretty terrible things. It's amazing. It's that, that good. That's the silver lining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a joke what's going on, but it's it's a good thing in many ways. All right. right. Bill Samuel joining us on our live line today, Government Affairs Director of the AFL-CIO. Complete updates, go to aflcio.org. We'll continue with him. We'll talk about uh, trade relations with China. Interesting Interesting news that came out of a House China Select Committee. Later in the show, we are going to replay a segment that I did with Sean McGarvey, president of the North American Building Trades. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. Attention members of the Heat and Frost Insulators Union who are interested in traveling. Central Ohio has more construction projects on the books than anywhere in the U.S. Mega projects, large and medium-sized jobs are creating more work than our local 50 brothers and sisters can handle. Projects like Intel, the Honda LG battery plant, and multiple data centers for Facebook, Google, and Amazon offer union wages, overtime, exciting incentives. Local 50 is seeking union travelers to meet the needs of its signatory contractors who can put you to work immediately. If you're a member in good standing and interested in the work opportunities in Central Ohio, visit insulators50.com forward slash AWF travel for more information. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at uaw.org. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. 
America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. When you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. OH.AFT.ORG is a website. Let's go back to our live line. Rejoin Bill Samuel, last segment with Bill for 2023. Uh, we got to talk about trade here with China. And I had a conversation with Dave McCall president of the uh, Steelworkers just a couple of days ago about this uh, House China Select Committee. And they were, uh, and there was a bipartisan group of lawmakers on this, and they, they took a look at trade relations with China, which which were horrible. I mean, you go back to uh, PNTR back in uh, 2000, and what we saw at least four or five million jobs manufacturing jobs disappear. And you know this, Bill. Every time a manufacturing job disappears, you got about three or four or five jobs that disappear along with it. So we got hit pretty hard. And uh, they didn't say specifically that we should dump that. But they're obviously looking into it. I'd like to get your opinion. I'm sure you took a look at this uh, this report and its recommendations. I'd like to get your point of view. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the rare bipartisan, as you said a moment ago, one of the rare bipartisan uh, activities. It's to call the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, which is sort of a Republican way of putting things. But it's it, the chair is a Republican, uh, the co-chair is a, a, a Democrat, uh, and they work together to just examine the relation, the economic relationship and security relationship uh, with China. And as you said, they've <clears throat> they've you know they've reported what we all have known, which is the amount of. Uh, the number of jobs, uh, factories, and technology that's been exported to China, uh, and they, they're trying. They're rec- they're, they have a number of recommendations to try to turn that around. Now we've you know we've always had kind of a complex relationship with China. Uh, we don't want to go to war with them, obviously. Uh, and trade relations, it's always been believed, keep keep countries uh, from you know open hostility if they've got trade relations if they're trading goods back and forth, and there's sort of an incentive to maintain peaceful relations. The problem is I think China's been eating our lunch for the last several decades. Um, they've, been getting, they've been doing much better in that uh, back and forth than we have, so we've got a, an enormous trade deficit, meaning uh, we buy a lot more Chinese products than they buy of ours, and we're losing tech, technologi- our technological advances. You know, we used to have a semiconductor industry. It was invented here. It was built here. Uh, semiconductors are in every product we practically that we use it all it all went uh, east uh, to Asia uh, mostly China uh, and countries in that region and so now we're trying to build it back because it's a matter of security that we can have build our own semiconductors for not only military equipment but telephones refrigerators cars everything else that we use so it's a good thing that this committee's meeting and then hopefully Congress will follow their recommendations. So they're kind of going to revisit this, and, and I bring this up because they did revise NAFTA into the USMCA. Right. Do you see something That's like right. that perhaps I, happening? You know, it's possible. This may be one of those 
rare sweet spots where Democrats, uh, you know, particularly from the industrial heartland, uh, agree with Republicans who are, you know, anti-communist. Um, this is where the sort of the two parties may meet in the middle. And again, this is a bipartisan effort. They may revisit PNTR. They may deny China. Uh, permanent trade uh, uh, relations, uh, which which opens up trade uh, without some of the sanctions and tariffs that we have with other countries. Um, as you pointed out, we did this with Mexico. We reopened the uh, uh, NAFTA uh, and renegotiated that so that we can now insist on fair labor treatment in Mexico, and that raises wages there and makes them somewhat less uh, competitive uh, with the U.S., which is a good thing, and I think we would. I think the idea would be to do the same thing with China. It's not going to be as easy, though. China is a much bigger economy, much more powerful than Mexico, uh, as as a uh, as a competitor. Yeah. Uh, but we'll see. As I said, it may be one of those rare areas where Democrats or Republicans can come together. It's interesting to note. I've been doing this show for 25 years, and, and I remember so many lawmakers, Democrats and Republicans. I mean, Clinton was in the White House when all this was being negotiated. They were talking about how good this is going to be. It's going to open the doors. It's going to create jobs. And now they're saying just the opposite. Isn't that amazing, Bill? Well, not only that it would create jobs, which it didn't, um, but it would lead to the democratization of China. Right. Now, the theory has always been, as I, as I said, you know, when we trade with countries, they will see the benefits of our democratic system, of our capitalist system, and be, people will demand it, and, it and, 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 and those economies will begin to change to look more like ours. I think that turned out to be a complete fallacy. China is as repressive and autocratic as it's ever been, maybe more so, I think, I think definitely more so than uh, 30 years ago. So actually it's not the case that trade automatically lifts all boats in terms of sort of civic uh, religion, um, democracy. It, it, that's not what happened. No. What, what did happen was it sucked a whole bunch of jobs and factories uh, from the U.S. Uh, and, and did nothing to improve a lot of the Chinese people. Not at all. All right, a couple minutes left here, and uh, I saw a post a couple of days ago about Julie Su, who's the the acting labor secretary right. since Marty right. Walsh left uh, earlier in the year. And uh, from what I what I gathered, Biden is going to renominate her in the new year. This is ridiculous in itself here because you got a very competent person involved in the labor department whose hands are pretty much tied right now so yeah. what what do you see happening here uh, bill well she's been a i think really a fabulous labor secretary she takes the job very seriously she comes with a lot of experience you know she was the labor commissioner in california cracked down on all kinds of wage theft and uh, you know, issues uh, that workers in california were facing particularly low-wage workers she's brought that sort of enthusiasm experience to the national level as u.s uh, labor secretary doing a great job uh, moving all kinds of important regulations through the agency fixing our overtime laws for example um, expanding overtime protection uh, the republicans for that very reason they dislike her uh, she could not get confirmed Thanks to uh, a Democrat, as I said, you know, Democrats have a one-vote majority in the Senate. Um, Joe Manchin from West Virginia would not vote for her. Um, I think there was one other 
Democrat, and I'm forgetting who it was, who wouldn't commit, so she never got a confirmation vote. She's acting secretary. And I think President Biden wants to keep her right where she is through uh, the end of his first term. And Republicans will jump up and down and scream that he should find somebody else. But she's doing a great job, and under the, the law, she can continue to uh, act as secretary with all the powers of, that, that that would um, con, uh, convey um, through the end of the term. Now, as you said, she, her hands are a little bit tied because she hasn't been confirmed, but I would say she's really um, she's using every ounce of authority she has as acting secretary and, and is doing a great job. And I, we'd like to convert one or two of those votes and get her confirmed next year. We're going to keep working on it. She's proven herself. We think the senators who haven't uh, who won't support her should go back, should take another look. So that's what we're going to hope for in, in the new year. So, so she's not at 100% capacity. She's probably about maybe 92 to 95. She's pretty close. Yeah, she's I pretty close. She's, okay. she's pretty close. <laughs> so we'd still rather have her than, you know, a, a somebody that the Republicans would pick, even with her, you know, hands tied just a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's been some real winners in that department over the years. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, we're going to leave it on that. No, it's been a heck of a year for organized labor. I've been li- reading a lot about what happened this year. A lot of strikes. It was a summer of strikes and a lot of very, very well negotiated contracts. The Teamsters, the UAW, my union, SAG, AFTRA, the issue of artificial intelligence that all came up, and uh, uh, and they're all in these uh, collective bargaining agreements. So I like to leave it on a happy note. Uh, I know we talked about some weird things that may happen in the new year, but it's always going to be positive. Well, we can't keep, we can't depend on Congress, but we can count on the labor movement. So that's that's what we'll focus next year. Amen on that, brother. <laughs> AFLCIO.org is a website. Bill Samuel serving as government affairs director. You take care. Best of the new year holiday, and we'll talk to you in January, okay? Same to you. Look forward to it. Thanks. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Sean McGarvey from a July interview on the North American building trades, what they're doing, their mission. That's coming up next. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.com. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. This portion of the show brought to you by the International Union of Bricklayers and Allied Craftworkers. For more information, please visit BACweb.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United United Steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in In the the U.S., U.S., Canada, Canada, and and the the Caribbean. Caribbean. 
We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SBS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be a WF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the North Coast Labor Federation. We're talking about a great year for unions, certainly a great year for the building trades. We're talking, I believe this was maybe about a month or six weeks ago, about the First Lady, Jill Biden, who joined a number of leaders in Columbus, Ohio, as the city held its kickoff for its workforce hub. In fact, there's a, there's like five of these workforce hubs around the country. Along with Columbus, there's Pittsburgh, Augusta, Georgia, Baltimore, and Phoenix. And this is all due to legislation passed by the president, including the American Rescue Plan, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, the Chips and Science Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act. All that being said, we decided to invite Sean McGarvey to the show. This was back in uh, July, July 13th, to talk about what's happening in America and the need to ramp up the apprenticeship program so we have people that can take part in a great economy. Pathway to the middle class, that's what it's all about. So let's listen to that segment with Sean McGarvey, president of the North American Building Trades Unions. Sean McGarvey. Welcome back to America's Workforce. How are we doing today, my brother? I'm doing great, and it's great to be with you. So this multi-city tour, and it started proudly in the state of Ohio, I remember. Uh, This was back in April, I believe. It was in Columbus, and for very good reason. There's a lot of good things happening in central Ohio, mainly with the chips plant. Now I see Amazon Web Services is going to be building a facility. In fact, they're they're saying this might become the... uh, the new Silicon Valley. I know you know Dorsey Hager pretty well. He's pretty much clued us in on all the stuff that's going on. But talk to me about this strategy, what what you started, where you're going with it. Go ahead, Sean. Well, uh, where it started really was, you know, 30 years ago with, with us uh, working uh, with our councils across the country, uh, trying to recruit and target communities um, that didn't have enough representation in the building trades. Uh, now we're, we're decades into it and jobs in the building trades are all based on the economy, uh, the ebb and flow of the workload and the need for skilled craft. And with the advent of massive pieces of legislation to invest in our infrastructure, uh, from the bipartisan infrastructure act to the chips act to the inflation act, we now are looking uh, down the road at uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of $4 trillion worth of investment in our nation's infrastructure. Um, and we're going to need to uh, ramp up our programs 
to get even more folks from these targeted communities, communities of color, women, veterans, formerly incarcerated, um, into our uh, registered apprenticeship programs and get them deployed on job sites, help to build the nation's infrastructure. We call them the infrastructure generation, um, and then secure their place in the middle class. So uh, we are getting around to uh, some of the hot spots first, and then just about everywhere after that to uh, highlight the programs that are already ongoing, uh, to encourage the ramp up of those programs to meet the demand and uh, meeting with and working with all our local partners uh, from the community, from public policy makers to our contractors, to the owners who are um, investing in capital, uh, both uh, uh, public and private. So uh, it's a, it's a real effort um, to grow our ranks and uh, meet the moment. You've done four of these cities, St. Louis being the last. How would you assess the uh, the reception in those cities? Are, are you starting to – do you feel that you're connecting with the communities that you're targeting right now, Sean? Yeah, we uh, we really do. It's, um, it's interesting. You know, we have the national relationships, um, but locally they have the local relationships where the, where the work really gets done and where the rubber meets the road. Um, so we're bringing all our partners together, uh, bringing, uh, uh, folks together who have gone through the programs, who are in the programs, um, and then, uh, you know, find ourselves, uh, trying to figure out how to do a one day event, uh, which includes a tour of a training center where who's hosting the event and then having a, a plenary session where we have speakers and, uh, you know, naturally we've got, uh, uh, Public policymakers, mayors, and county commissioners, and city council people that are like, "Hey, I want to be part of that. I know the good work that the Building Trades is doing. I've been supporting it. Uh, let me be there to uh, to promote it with you." So, uh, trying to keep control of an agenda as this grows out is has uh, become more and more difficult. We might have to expand it to more than one day. Mm-hmm. I was reading a report out of St. Louis, which was your last stop where you said there's over 250,000 people in your training programs and you can ramp that up to, uh, to 1 million. That, that's a tall order. That's, that's quadrupling. How do you feel about that? And what time, what time period are we looking at? Well, the, again, uh, the, the time period is based on demand. You know, as we, just because, um, you know, we have all this uh, work that's been announced and uh, will be announced uh, that's funded either directly or indirectly from uh, the federal legislation. Uh, we still have to have a, a collective bargaining relationship with the entity that's going to build it and put together a project labor agreement uh, to put these programs into place. So uh, nothing's given to us. We still have to compete for it. Um but the fact of the matter is that uh, our 1,600-plus training centers in the United States you know, operate basically uh, in a couple different ways, but most of them operate on a, on a night or nights per week or a Saturday um, where the uh, training is done uh, in the classroom and in the labs. Um, but that leaves a lot of other days of the week, and that leaves us the room to expand. We have mm-hmm. the curriculum. We have the infrastructure. Uh, we have some of the trainers, some unions are expanding the number of trainers to meet the demand. Um, but, uh, we certainly can uh, ramp it up quite a bit. I was reading more about the St. Louis 
program. Uh, it's the St. Louis Building Union Diversity, or BUD program. It's a six-week program. It was created uh, almost 10 years ago by the uh, St. Louis Building and Construction Trades Council. And from what I'm reading here, this is pretty amazing. Uh, they're, they're boasting a 92% graduation rate and 83%. 83% of the program participants are minorities. 29% are women. Sean, that's that's quite an accomplishment. And so obviously the needle is moving in the right direction. That 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 message coming out of NAB to Washington seems to be uh, affecting the the local trades unions. Uh, can we can we sustain that kind of thing? I guess that's my next question here. I I, I really think we can. Um, and you know, uh, earlier this year in January, we released a, a study that was commissioned. Um, uh, that took about 18 months to put together that looked at the whole construction industry and the diversity of the construction industry. And it, uh, it specifically looked at the uh, union uh, training infrastructure, the, the jointly managed programs with us and our contractors, and then it looked at the open shop. And, uh, you know, compared to the open shop, you know, we blow uh, them out of the water when it comes to the amount of people uh, that we brought into the program, I think uh, off the top of my head, 300,000 more uh, minority candidates come into our apprenticeship programs over the last uh, 20 years than the open shop, and 40,000 more women have come into our programs as compared to the open shop over the last 20 years. So we, ha- we have a lot of work to do still, but we've now set a benchmark for the entire industry. Um, ours is intentional. Uh, ours is focused. Ours is continual. Um, and growing, and uh, it takes investment, uh, it takes time, and it takes commitment. And uh, that's what we have on the union side, and we're proud of the numbers. We know we have more work to do, and and we're doing it, and the excitement on the ground uh, about creating opportunities for people uh, to enter uh, the infrastructure generation and change their personal economic circumstances for them and their family um, has everybody excited about this work and uh, lining up to uh, do what they can uh, to help people uh, make this uh, transition, take advantage of this opportunity, and help to build their community. So um, it's exciting times for us. Sean McGarvey is joining us today. Sean is president of the North American Building Trades Unions. NAB2.org is our website. I want to talk to you a little bit more about uh, women. And uh, by the way, we uh, record this show in Iron Workers Local 17. It started during the pandemic, and I like it here so much I'm staying here, okay? (laughs) It's a great group here. And I bring that up because the Iron Workers, and you know this story, some years back they did, uh, what, 12 weeks of paid maternity leave and because they're trying, just like all the trades, to get more females in the profession. And I understand other trades are looking at that. That's a big issue because you get uh, you got child care, you know, obviously maternity leave. But um, how do you see that progressing down the road? And also, you know, the retention of those people because of schedules. And you got to take care of kids. There's school. There's travel. There's, there's a lot of elements here. How do we uh, how do you see that going, Sean? Well, it's 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 a massive problem uh, for the country. It's holding our economy back. It's preventing people from um, getting into or back into the workforce. And 
paid maternity programs like the iron workers have put in. And now I think we have five or six uh, other unions uh, who have similar type programs um, to help with that transition uh, when that uh, celebratory time comes in, in a person's life to have a child um, and have the time to bond with that child uh, and not worry about how they're going to pay their bills when they do it. Um, but the next step after that is when they get back on the job site and we need them back on the job site, how do they have a place where they're comfortable that their baby is in a, is in a safe nurturing, uh, environment, uh, where they can concentrate, uh, to safely apply their craft and not have the constant worry about how their child's doing that day. We've, we've, uh, uh, experienced through the rescue bill, uh, a, a child tax credit that was phenomenally successful and phenomenally popular. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it would have been part of Build Back Better. Um, it didn't make it ex- extremely expensive to do. So in the meantime, with the Women's Committee of the National Building Trades, uh, we got together and said, let's, let's figure out if we could put something together that would work for us in the construction industry, which is a little different because of our start and quit times. Uh, to deal with the, the usual hours of uh, traditional daycare. Um, and we came up with two pilots that were running as we speak, one in Milwaukee, one in uh, New York City. We have 20 people in each cohort uh, where we're given a $1,000 a month stipend um, for them to offset their, their child care costs. Uh, it's for a year. It's extremely expensive. We raised the money to do it. Uh, but Everywhere we go, including I was just getting back from uh, TVA last night and had uh, dinner with the, the, the CEO of, of Tennessee Valley Authority, Jeff Lash, a very, very large client of ours. And we spent a lot of time talking about uh, how, how, do we, how do we do this? How do we do it as community? How do we do it as public policymakers? How do we do it as unions? How do we do it with our contractors um, when the costs are so exorbitant? Uh, that we can figure out ways to mitigate all the all the barriers that get in the way and keep people in the workforce and get them back in the workforce when they start a family. So that's a, that's a very tall mountain. We don't have all the answers to that. That's going to take, uh, as somebody once said, that's going to take a village to, to, mm-hmm. to be able to accomplish that. But it needs to be done. It needs to be focused on. And thankfully, there's, there's starting to be a lot of focus in states and some focus in the in the Congress uh, about this issue. Sean McGarvey joining us on our live line today, president of NAB2, that's a North American Building Trades Unions, nab2.org. Let's uh, let's do this again. There's a lot going on. I want to continue on this theme with this uh, multi-city highlight tour. Got to make sure we got more young people getting involved in the trades because we need them. Okay, brother? Yep, and I'll just, let me just end it by saying this. Uh, anybody that can hear the podcast and is interested uh, in a career in the construction, unionized construction industry, we want you. We want you to be part of the infrastructure generation. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up tomorrow, Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas and a tribute to the late great union leader for the steelworkers, Tom Conway. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. 
Find out more information online at labortools.com.